I'm going uh, to have Nathan read our, uh, our scripture, John 11, 1 through 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are not, uh, the Jews, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. Thank you, sir. Good job. You can take that with you. Uh, This week, we reach a hinge in the book of John. We move from part one, which is all about the signs that Jesus did and the reaction to those signs, into part two, which is about his final week of ministry. The story, uh, well, we talked about the signs, right? There's, John, John mentions five specific signs that Jesus did. He first had the turning of the water into wine in Cana. He had the healing of the official son. Sign three was the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The man had been there for 38 years, and of course, that caused a ruckus for a few chapters. Then he fed the 5,000, and then we had the healing of the man born blind, which we talked about last week. Um, so the story, you know, uh, um, that, that whole section of the, the book of signs, as you could call it, um, is hinged by this story we're going to tell today, the story of Lazarus, which is sign number six. And this will usher us into part two. There's a dynamic uh, at play in this particular story that jumped out at me for the first time this week, and that is the dynamic of fear and danger in this story. The decision to, uh, to go and perform this miracle, the raising of Lazarus, uh, was an intensely costly decision for Jesus uh, and his disciples. So let me explain what I mean. We didn't preach on the second half of John chapter 12 last week because we didn't have time. But here's basically what happened. Jesus went to Jerusalem for another feast. It was the Feast of Hanukkah. And of course, got in trouble again. This time it wasn't for healing on the Sabbath. Instead, it was for blasphemy, for making himself evil, uh, even with God. And uh, when that happened, things got violent. Uh, they, they tried to arrest him. And they even tried to put him to death right there in the temple. They picked up rocks in the temple to stone him. Like that's, that's pretty intense, right? Amidst all those huge crowds, they, they almost had a public execution right there. But somehow, verse 39 says that Jesus, quote, escaped their hands. How did he do that? I don't know, but I want the footage. 
Maybe he portaled out, you know, used some miracle. <laughs> Hole in the wall and comes out the other side. I don't know. Or maybe Jesus was just fast. <laughs> think of that. Never think of Jesus as being fast. Like maybe Prefontaine wasn't the first bearded, long-haired runner, you know? I don't know. Or, or, or you know, I, maybe I, I personally like to think of him like parkouring off the Solomon's portico, you know, just like, I don't know. But however it happened, he had to run away, him and the disciples, or else they would be killed. And they go, they end up fleeing uh, east of Jerusalem, going across the Jordan River into a spot where John the Baptist used to hang out with, with his people. And he still has disciples there and he still has a following there. And so they're safe there. Um, so that's what happened at the end of chapter 12. Now it's hard to put together an exact timeline of how everything took place when you compare John with the Synoptic Gospels. But here's what I believe. It, it appears that while they were, it was while they were there outside or on the other side of the Jordan that they received word, they received a message from Mary and Martha. And their message said this, Lazarus, their older brother, was very sick. And apparently they were very close with Jesus. In fact, the message literally says, the one whom you love is ill. I wonder if John had trouble writing that sentence, you know, because he was the disciple who Jesus loved. But he's like, fine, he also loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha and maybe Philip, but don't you dare make me say Peter, you know? Like, he's like, this is me, it's my thing. But the one whom you love is ill. And the, the, the whole crew like was close with this family. Um, it appears they hosted them when they were down in Judea traveling to feast. They were very close. And the message comes now to Jesus with a clear implied request. Jesus, come. You know how to heal. We've seen you do it so many times. So please come and heal Lazarus. But when he hear, hears it, do you know what he does? Nothing. He says this. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And he, he stays put. He doesn't go to his friend. It's very unchristlike. This might have surprised his disciples. And I always imagined, even when I taught on this, I always imagined them being like, what are you doing, Jesus? But I, I wasn't reading the story closely enough because nobody argues with him at all. In fact, they don't want to go, apparently. Because, because Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, is right next to Jerusalem. It's like a, it's like a village suburb. It's two miles away. And this is officially hostile territory. Remember, they had just run for their lives from that place. There's real danger in going to, to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So nobody argues Jesus' decision to stay put. They all hang out right there for the next two days. And while they're staying put, Lazarus dies. Doesn't appear there was a message. It appears Jesus just knew. So he tells his disciples, guys, I'm going back to Judea. And here's how the disciples answer. Let's look in John 11:8. 8. 
in the message. Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews are out to kill you and you're going back? Can you hear their teeth clattering in that? They don't want him to go and they don't want to go. So he tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go wake him up. So they hear that and they took him literally. <laughs> it's kind of funny. They're like, oh, well, if he's fallen asleep, then we obviously need, don't need to go back because he'll just recover. I am not getting this. And Jesus, <laughs> verse 14, then Jesus became explicit. You guys, Lazarus died. <laughs> he's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. I'm sure those words must have just hung in the air, you know? Lazarus, our friend, is dead. I wonder if they felt shame in that moment. Shame for not wanting to go to him, for being too afraid. Maybe, maybe they should have. Maybe they could have gotten there in time. Maybe they would have been safe after all, but now their friend is dead. The only one to answer is Thomas, who someone once dubbed Doubting Thomas, which is such a slap in the face. The man deserves better. Look at the statement. He says this, let's also go that we may die with him. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? Like, what do you mean by that? Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message. He says, we might die, we might as well die with him. Like, you know what? If he's dead, we have not been wanting to go. We might as well go. Fine, Rabbi, let's go. Let's walk right back into the lion's den. Let's do this. I got nothing left to lose. And so they go. Now they travel somewhere around 20 to 25 miles or so uh, west, and they reach the outskirts of a village that is already four days into this funeral. He died four days ago. Now, here's what uh, Dr. Craig Keener says in the Bible background commentary from the smart folks at InterVarsity Press. The first week of deep grief after a close relative's burial would be spent mourning in one's house, sitting on the floor and visited by friends. This custom called Shiva uh, for seven days, that's what it means, is still practiced in Judaism today and is very helpful for releasing grief. Mourners abstain from adornment for three weeks and for common pleasures for the next. So it's an intense, this first intense period of mourning here. Now let's read what happens in John eleven twenty-seven. 27, excuse me, 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's Martha, by the way. Someone else who gets a bad rap. Martha, who gives that glorious confession, you are the Christ. 
Somebody needs to give this woman some props. Like she's not running around just cleaning all the time. There's more to Martha than that. Sometimes she's given these radical theological pronouncements like that. And then Mary comes and she says basically the same thing as Martha had said, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. He would still be alive. Here's what John, uh, John 11, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled. It uses this phrase a couple of different times in this section. So troubled that he wept. Why did he weep? Like why when he knew full well what he was going to do? He had determined he was going to raise Lazarus before he ever got here. So why did he, why did he weep? Well, there have been a lot of ideas proposed why he wept. Some say he wept because of the unbelief of the sisters, but I just, guys, I just don't think that's true. I mean, Martha had just called him the Christ, you know? The Son of God, she clearly believed, and Mary too. They called for Jesus in the first place because they believed in his power to heal. Maybe it was because the disciples still didn't believe even though they had seen him raise somebody from the dead. <laughs> I don't know though because they were walking with him now, weren't they? They were risking their lives even being there with him. They sure seemed to believe. Guys, I just don't think this was about unbelief. I think Jesus would have addressed it. Like sometimes he does seem troubled by people's refusal to trust him, doesn't he? And, and, and when that happens, he says so. Like, he comments on this kind of thing often. Uh, sometimes he says things like, where's your faith? Or, oh, ye of little faith. Or, or, I've never seen faith like this man in all of Israel. Or, your faith has made you well. This time he doesn't say anything like that. But he was clearly very troubled, and he starts to weep like a mourner. I want to suggest two reasons why he wept, and we're going to talk about this for the rest of the morning. The first reason I think he wept was that people he loved were in pain. He's near to the brokenhearted. And when we weep, he feels that. He sees his friends torn up with grief, and it doesn't even matter that he's about to raise their brother from the dead. What matters is that they're destroyed inside, you know? And that's enough to destroy him inside. And while they're weeping, they're asking that same question we ask today. Where were you, Jesus? Where were you? Isn't that the question we still ask? Where were you? Why didn't you come? You could have visited that hospital bed, but you chose not to. I was reflecting on all of that this week because I'm working on a writing project uh, and I was writing a chapter on suffering and I, I had to go back and tell the story of our dear Janae McWilliams who passed away four and a half years ago. Many of you knew her and loved her just like I did. It was hard not to love her, wasn't it? She was amazing. 
And when Janae got cancer, she had people praying all over the world for her. She had been a missionary and a world traveler and deeply loved, and from every time zone, probably dozens and dozens of nations, people were calling out to Jesus, please, please do something. And then she was gone. 43 years old. If Jesus had walked in after that, I would have said, Lord, if you had been here, my sister would still be with us. Guys, those pains are real. And sometimes, sometimes we don't know what to do with them. I recently came across this sonnet by the great English poet Malcolm Gite. It's called Engine Against the Almighty. And it's about what we who follow God can often feel when we have this ache and, 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 and he doesn't answer. Here's, here's the sonnet. Can I read it to you? I'm going to. <laughs> Here in this shadowed valley, dark and bleak, We lay a bitter siege against the one who was our heart's desire, but now withdraws behind his battlements. Our prayers just break against what seem like walls of silent stone. We make an engine of our injuries and vault at God a volley of our sorrows. All the despair and anger that we feel The catapult of our catastrophes hurls up its heavy load and flights of arrows clatter against his walls, fall back and fail. How can we make him feel our miseries? We fling back famine at him, torture, cancer. Is he almighty then? Has he no answer? I read that and I felt my heart ache again. And of course, he does have an answer. It's just maybe not the kind that we were looking for. It's not an answer of logic and explanation. It's not an itemized list of reasons why he allows suffering. No, it's none of that. He answers with his tears. He weeps right alongside us. When we ache, he aches. I was remembering how I, I, would, unload, I would load up my, my catapult of sorrows, my own personal one, and launch it at God. I did that a lot after Janae's death. I, we often encourage you guys to pray prayers of lament, to be honest with God, just to let him have it. Like he's a big God, he can handle it. And I did that a lot. And I would, I would walk over to the fields behind Laurel and there was, there was this picnic table that has since been removed. Who do I need to talk to? And I would sit there and I would give it to him. I'd say, God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. You could have healed her. You did not heal her. And this is kind of cruel, God. This is deja vu because we lost Karenita in exactly the same way. And this just, I don't like this. I don't like this. And I'm just loading up that catapult. I'm loading it up to give him my sorrows, to give him a piece of my mind. And it occurred to me this week as I was remembering that, even while I loaded that up to send God my grievances, Jesus is right here with me, maybe loading them up alongside me. He's in the thick of all of it, you guys. And I think he wept 
when I wept over Janae, when you wept over Janae, I think he was right there with us, weeping too. Greg Boyd, a theologian, wrote this wonderful book called Letters from a Skeptic. And he tells, it's a book of letters to his father, who was not a believer at the time, and was telling him all about his experiences, and he was telling about a time he almost gave up on his faith. It's when he was, when he was studying uh, the Holocaust. And he had these two things. He's like, there has to be a God, but this is so wicked that it can't be. Like, how? Let me read you a section of what he says. One night he, he broke down. Finally, he said, I looked up at the sky and cried out with a loud, angry voice, the only God I can believe in is the one who knows firsthand what it's like to be a Jewish child buried alive and knows what it's like to be a Jewish mother watching her child be buried. And just then it occurred to me, or was it revealed? That is exactly the kind of God Christianity proclaims. The God who feels what we feel and weeps right alongside us. Jesus showed us that day exactly what the heart of God looked like by weeping with Mary and Martha. There's a second reason I suspect he wept and it's this. He knew what was going to happen if he raised Lazarus. He knew exactly where it was gonna lead. To do that miracle so close to Jerusalem right before Passover with hundreds of witnesses while he was still a wanted man. Let me just tell what happened. You know what happened, but there's some details in here that maybe you forgot. We're not gonna read it now, but, but here's, here's what took place. Jesus, he comes in, he weeps with Mary and Martha and they take him to the grave. And amidst this huge gathering of people that are already there, some are mourners and some are gawkers waiting to see Jesus. They know something's about to go down. So he gets there and he says, take me to the tomb. And they open up the tomb and everybody's tense. And he says, he says, he says, Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And everybody waits. And then you see this head poke out. <laughs> Can you feel that? Like, ha, ha, this is the stuff of horror movies, you guys. This freaked people out. Now, if you're Mary and Martha or people that knew him and loved him, you're like, ha, 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 whoa, like, you know, all that. But there's a whole lot of people that were losing their minds. And they, you know what they did? Some of them just started running. They ran back to Jerusalem. They ran straight back to Jerusalem, started spreading the word. Jesus is instantly trending on Twitter, X. And, and, and some of them run straight to the Pharisees to say, guess who's back? And guess what he just did? They immediately assemble a council. A whole bunch of the religious leaders all together. Even the high priest is there. And they say, this is what's going on. And the high priest says, you know what? He needs to die. We're going to arrest him and he needs to die. And now you have the entire Jerusalem establishment against him. It is a rough, rough day. <laughs> and from that point on, it says Jesus could not walk amongst them. Now, 
when he finally did come into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the only reason he didn't get arrested was that he had all his fans there. And this is that scene we talk about every Palm Sunday, so we're not going to go deeply into that story, but he's got a massive crowd there trying to crown him king. So excited, they're shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches. They're, they're on the verge of rioting, so the religious leaders who are there to arrest him were like, ah, maybe we should hold off. Let's wait for a better time, and they will find a better time in a few days through Judas Iscariot. They'll get Jesus by himself, and they'll arrest him, and he's going to go to his death. Do you see what Jesus did in raising Lazarus? This never occurred to me until this week. Dr. Tim Mackey turned me on to this point. I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've never seen this before. He did nothing short than lay down his life for Lazarus. Greater love hath no one than he who lays down his life for his friend, and that's what Jesus did. So go back now and remember the fear of the disciples. They didn't want to go back to Judea. Go back and see Jesus being greatly troubled, saying that multiple times. Part of the reason I believe he's weeping is because he knows it's time. He sees his friends weeping, and yes, that will stop. Lazarus will be raised, but then they're going to weep again when he dies. And even that, yes, even that will, will, will be reversed. But after that, they're going to have all of, all of Jerusalem against them and Rome again. Like they're going to be wanted people is very, very heavy, heavy times for this man and the people that he loves. And it's in the middle of all this heaviness that we come back to Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary had sat at Jesus' feet once like a real disciple. Remember that? Something her sister clearly didn't like, and I think her culture didn't like either. She loved Jesus, and now she's the most grateful woman on the planet. She has her brother back. And it's hard to assemble the actual order of events here, but it seems that this happened perhaps on the night before the triumphal entry. They're throwing a feast for Jesus, and they better. (laughs) They're throwing this feast for him. Look at John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This was a very lavish gift. It was very, very expensive. And not everybody likes it. Judas scolds her for being wasteful, but Jesus stops the scolding. And here's what he says in a parallel passage in Mark 14. He says, leave her alone, Judas. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She wastes something so very expensive on the one she loves. 
on Jesus, who was so weighed down and heavy in spirit. The man who is about to give his life for them is deeply troubled, so you know what she does? She comforts him just as he had comforted her. Have you ever, have you ever considered that we can comfort the heart of Jesus? We become ministers not only to one another, but also to the heart of God himself. Have you ever thought about that? It sounds strange, but it's, it's biblical. In fact, this is one of the, 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 the things that's listed for the Levites to do in the Old Testament to minister to the Lord. We see the angels doing that. We see the church doing that in the book of Acts. When the church leaders were seeking God, they were ministering to the Lord. Would God ever make himself so vulnerable to us as to receive our ministry? Well, look at Jesus. (laughs) Did Jesus make himself vulnerable? The answer, friends, is resoundingly yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he wept with Mary. He felt her pain right alongside her. Yes, he eased her pain calling forth Lazarus. And then he received her love by accepting this sacred gift. We can do the same. We can minister to the God who has made himself vulnerable to us. When I think of all the times that I've ignored God, I almost always think about what it cost me, you know? (laughs) It cost me my peace. It cost me the sense of groundedness. It cost me joy when I ignore him. When I lose my, I start losing my bearings. I get agitated. It's all me, me. But I wonder sometimes if there's an effect on him too. Like, maybe God actually misses me. Maybe there's a part that only I can play and and a piece of of love that only I I can give him. You guys who have children, multiple children, know this is the case, isn't it? If one child doesn't want to give you love, you can't just go to the other one and go, can you fill me up like that one could? Like, that's a beautiful thing too, but part of you still hurts, you know? And maybe it's the same thing for us. I don't want to shame anybody if you struggle with spending time with Jesus. I, I, I do too. I get busy. I get distracted. I, I will put them off until later. And I, I'm only saying that it, those times of being with him, maybe they're not only for us. Maybe he, he invites us to minister to his heart. Maybe that means we have to shift how we view ourselves sometimes. Maybe we do have something to offer him. Maybe there's something beautiful he invites. And I wonder sometimes if he's just waiting there for us. You guys, why do you distract yourselves away? I really do want the best for you. Don't you remember that I am the resurrection and the life? One day, One day, he's going to complete that resurrection. He's going to make all things new around us. 
One day, all of our sorrows will be at an end. Death itself will be finished. And we'll all rise just like Lazarus. But today, while we wait, while we reflect on the heaviness of the world and the sorrow in our own lives, today's a good day to draw near to this Jesus who comforts us and has the audacity to receive our comfort. This, this is our gift. We don't have to celebrate or suffer alone, ever. Do you hear me? You never have to celebrate or suffer alone, ever. We do that with our Savior. We share that load with one another and with a God who chooses to suffer with us. John Mark McMillan wrote a song about this some years back. And as we close, we're just gonna play that song in this video. Um, I know everyone has different tastes in music, so maybe you don't love this, but just watch, watch the words. Watch the words for this song. 